We're here tonight. I realize that we have a lot of folks that are out of town uh, traveling for the 4th, and uh, we certainly wish uh, everyone safety as they travel. You may be leaving tomorrow to go somewhere yourself. Uh, we have visitors with us tonight, people who are visiting their family. Thank you for being here. We're just honored to have you. I'm pleased tonight to introduce our speaker, Brother Chuck Webster. He's been here before. Uh, this introductory uh, introduction I'm going to do tonight has really two different parts, and I'll just explain it as we go. First of all, Chuck is a well-known and excellent Bible student, recently received his doctorate of theology from Beeson Divinity School. Now he can affirmatively respond any time when the question is asked, is there a doctor here? And though Chuck disdained such titles, his hero and preaching mentor, Todd Clippard, not content to merely address him as doctor, personally refers to him as the theological ultimate respected doctor, a title he cherishes. Now, I had to, I got to explain that a little bit. Todd was here last week, right? And uh, he, he said he's going to watch this tonight on live stream whenever he gets around to it after services, but it, it just seems to work out where Todd and Chuck are appearing on some summer series together and quite frequently back to back. And so uh, I think the tradition is they kind of belittle each other a little bit ahead of time, whoever goes first. And uh, Todd last week emailed me this introduction for tonight and uh, wanted to kind of change the uh, the way it was done a little bit. So anyhow, I had to do that. I was forced to do that. So uh, you may not be laughing, but somewhere Todd Clippert is, I believe. So anyhow, back to more serious introductory matters, though. Uh, we're glad to have Chuck with us, his wife, Melanie. Where is the, the family at? Right back there in the back. They've got, y'all Y'all are young. Y'all stand. I want y'all to stand. He, it's the 4th of July. They've got their all their children except one. And uh, one of the in-laws with them tonight. So I hope you'll uh, uh, meet them after services and welcome them uh, as a part uh, of our, uh, our visitors tonight. He's married to Melanie. He's been married since 1992. They have four children. The three oldest are married. The youngest just graduated from high school. Uh, Chuck has been preaching uh, for quite a while. He was at Cottondale also. Uh, he was at 6th Avenue in Jasper uh, from 98 to 2004, and while he was there, uh, I was at Blackwater, and we kind of intermingled there playing basketball for uh, a few years back when uh, my knees were still in decent shape, and that was an enjoyable time. I got to know him uh, quite a bit there, but he's currently preaching at Hoover, where he's been since 2004. Uh, Chuck uh, received... His uh, Bachelor of Science in Math from Fried Hardeman, also a Master's in Speech at the University of Alabama. And this is something I think that uh, says a lot about him. He's received his Master of Divinity as well as his Doctor of Ministry at Beeson Divinity School at Samford University. And so he's put a lot of years and time into this, and uh, I appreciate it when uh, people like Chuck, who are good, sound, solid gospel preachers, go on and get their education and receive their doctorate degrees. Uh, perhaps, maybe, uh, will teach in one of our Christian schools, which we are desperately 
uh, needing good, solid, sound Bible teachers uh, in our Christian schools, and I just appreciate him and his efforts and the good work that he's done at Hoover. So I'm going to turn it over to him for the remaining part of our time. Good evening. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad I get to be here with you guys uh, tonight here at Dalreda. Know some of you. Um, been able to see a few of you over the years, and got some family connections here as well. And I appreciate you guys. Uh, some of you were coming up to me a minute ago and talking to me about folks you know at Hoover. So uh, we've got some connections there. I'm sitting there thinking about what to say to Todd Clifford. Uh, what Doug was talking about, it's, it's funny how this has happened. Maybe Todd explained this last week, I don't know. But we've spoken at a lot of churches over the years, the same churches. And uh, it just, it's, it's funny how coincidentally, you know, you got 13, you probably got 13 different speakers in a summer series. But I don't know how many times this happened where Todd and I have gone, not only have we spoken on the same summer series, but we've spoken on consecutive weeks. And I don't remember who started it or how it started, but years ago, it's been going on for a while. He and I have been friends for a long time, and we pick at each other. And, and uh, I know that when I've had the privilege of speaking first, I would always say something like, look, you know, next week Todd's going to speak. And uh, if you would do me a favor, I'll, I'll give you 10 bucks or whatever it will cost me. But tell him after he finishes speaking that, you know, Todd, you did a you did a good job, but, man, you couldn't even hold a candle to the one that you heard last week. So that's how that's how it's been done. I don't know. He probably said something like that to you last week. But so I'm sure, Todd, you're watching this. Um, well, he got to go first this year, so I, don't, I can't even really say anything to, to get him back. Other than if you want to email him and tell him how awesome you thought this one was compared to last week, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe it. Just do it. It'd be that'd be awesome. Let's uh, turn to Exodus 20, if you would. Exodus chapter 20. In April 2001, Holland earned the dubious honor of being the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide when the Dutch Senate legalized euthanasia. It's interesting, that's 2001. Sixty years prior to that, when the Nazis occupied the Netherlands, Dutch doctors refused to obey orders. They were told by the Nazi occupiers to let the elderly or the terminally ill patients to die. The doctors were ordered that. In 1941, though, the Dutch doctors refused to obey the orders. It took only one generation, as Malcolm Mugridge has noted, to transform a war crime into an act of compassion, end quote. In 2001, it was the doctors themselves who led the charge to get this law passed so that they could legally practice euthanasia. No matter how you look at it, the 20th century was incredibly brutal. The things that happened from the year 1900 to the year 1999 are, are, are really unthinkable. The 20th century saw about 203 million people killed in what people call democide, which is Democide is when government, when you have government-sponsored slaughter. It includes genocide, the attempted elimination of a group of people ethnically, um, kind of homicide. But, but democide is when a government is sponsoring the execution. 203 million people. If we lined up 203 million people 
on stage. They were just going to walk through here at the rate of three miles per hour, 203 million people. And they're going to walk just again. They're about three feet apart, and they're walking at three miles per hour. It's going to take them nearly six months just to walk across the stage. If you, if you line them up, if you lay them down with they were an average height of about five feet, and you put them down head to toe, it would stretch from Honolulu, Hawaii, 22 times, there and back, 22 times. That's how many 203 million people are. The 20th century was terrible from the perspective of human life. Now, I'm going to talk to you about the sixth command tonight. We're going to be in Exodus 20. We're going to skip around a little bit. But I hope that you'll, you'll join me there. You're talking about the Ten Commandments, and I think that's a great theme. But, uh, maybe I can go online and listen to the other lessons because I, I think this is a message. These are messages that, that God's people need to hear, that the world needs to hear. In Exodus 20 and verse 13, the one that I was assigned is, You shall not murder. Uh, you know, I struggle a little bit how to talk to you about murder, how to, how to talk to you about the Sixth Commandment. Uh, but I think, if you'll stay with me, I want to talk, I want to do this in a couple of stages. I want to talk to you, first of all, about what it means and what it meant, especially what it meant when the Jews heard this, when they got this from Moses, from God through Moses at Sinai. I want, I want to wrestle with you about, and try to think about what they thought when they heard this, all right? But that's not enough. We haven't finished our task if we stop there, because I think we need to hear this as 21st century Americans. We need to hear it as Christians. We need to hear it as people who live in the state of Alabama, who live in the Bible Belt, who live in the South, we need to hear it as people who are going to try to take the Word of God and apply it to the context in which we live. And if you'll stay with me for a few minutes, I think you'll see that this commandment has some very real applications to you and me today. Let's look at it, though, for, for a few minutes. Just talk about what it means. Do not murder. You shall not murder. I'm reading from the ESV. That's how it's translated in the ESV, and probably most of you have almost the same kind of translation. In fact, all modern translations that I know of, with the exception of three, well, King James is not really modern, but translations that people use today, all of them but three use the word murder. And the ones that don't are the word are the King James that says, thou shalt not kill, of course. You've got the, um, the revised standard version that was translated in the 1940s and early 1950s. It says, you shall not kill. And then the American Standard Version translated in 1901, it says also, you shall not kill. So you've got those three that use the word kill, and then almost every other one uses the word murder, which is an interesting kind of translation choice. I want to talk to you about that for a minute. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But I want you to look and think about why does he say this? You know, why does, why does God say don't murder? I mean, I guess maybe the answer is obvious. But if you're in your Bible, look back up. Just scroll up a few verses. And I want you to look at how the Ten Commandments start. God spoke all these words, verse 1. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you think about it, the, the Ten Commandments were given on two tablets, right? you got five commands on one side, and you got five commands on the other. And a lot of scholars through the years have connected them. They, what you've got is you, they are arranged in this sort of way to help us see connections. So one would connect to commandment number six. Commandment number two would connect to commandment number seven. 3 to 8, 4 to 9, 5 to 10, right? So you got that parallel. And if you walk through it, you'll notice some similarities. There's some connections between, that, between those commandments and that, in that way. Now, think about this for a second. What is the connection between you shall not murder, 
which is the sixth commandment, and the first one, which is in verse 2. And I think the connection will be clear. Why does God tell you and me? Just using this definition for now, we'll kind of flesh this out a little bit. Let's just say that he's, he's saying that you should not intentionally kill another human being. Let's just use that kind of broad definition for now. Why would God say that? Why is this one of the ten? Why did this make the top ten? You know, Why is this here? Well, you go back to verse 1, you consider that parallel. The, the, the first commandment that corresponds to the sixth commandment is God says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, let's do something. I want you to think with me. You don't have to turn back there, but I want to read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Because we need to understand the basis of God's giving this command. Listen to Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, this is a creation, of course. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. But the important part of that is God created man. He created human beings in his own image, right? In his own image. One way of reading the creation account is to see it. The language is very clear on this respect. You see it as, um, as God, the, the supreme king, has created us to be his vice regents. We are to reign with him. We are to have dominion over the earth. We are to, we're to be God's, um, not partner, that's not the right word, but, but a vice regent. We're to reign with him. And so in order for us to reign with him, just as an ancient Near Eastern king would, when he conquered a land, when he had power over a land, he would set up various icons or images. And so he would put his likeness, the likeness of the king, at the entrances and throughout the land that he conquered, right? So whenever you were walking in the land and you wondered, who's in, who's in charge here? Who's the king of this land? All you had to do is look at the statue, look at the icon, look at the image, because the king's image would be on it. Now, when the text says that God created us in his own image, it's using that sort of language. That in God's way of describing creation, he created us to be his images, his, his representatives. When people, when, 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 people are, when, when people wonder, who's the king? Well, they look at us and they see the image of God. In fact, it's an interesting study to study that idea of the image of God from Genesis 1 and study it all the way through the Bible because what happens in Genesis 3 is that you and I mess that image up. And that image of God, we're supposed to reflect God, right? We're supposed to reflect the image of God. We've messed that up in the fall, every one of us since then. That image has been distorted. People look at us and they don't quite see God very clearly anymore because we are sinners, right? But what the, the biblical story, the biblical narrative in a very real way is God's reconciling us to himself so that that image might be restored. But here's what I want you to think about for now. Every single one of you. That's easy enough for us to believe. Every single one of you is created in God's image. But I think it's something that we need to recognize because it's a little bit harder for us to recognize this, to think about it as clearly as we should. Every other person was created in the image of God, including the people who don't look like you and me. People who are different from us. That's hard because we are we have this sinful tendency within us where we tend to we tend to build walls and and and, and build barriers and build separations between us and people who aren't like us. And so it's it's easy for us to see the image of God in people who look like us, talk like us, think like us. Sometimes we're not as 
We, we don't as easily see it in people who don't reflect in the same way we do or don't look like us. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to kind of slide that in for now. I want you to think about that, and we'll come back to it when we get to a part of application of this. All right, so um, create an image of God. Now listen to this. I'm going to connect this so we see why the commandment is here. Genesis 9-6. This is after the flood. Noah and his family off the boat. Got this new world, this recreated world. Genesis 9-6 says this. He's given some new commands, and he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. Pretty important for us to see that connection. In Genesis 1, God made us in his image. We're to be his reflection. We have the spark of God in us. We aren't deity, of course, but we are created with God's favor. And so in Genesis 9, when God's given this commandment to Noah and his sons, his family, he says, people who shed the blood of other people will be put to death themselves because they have taken people created in God's image and they've, they've killed them. It's pretty important for us to see that. Now back to Exodus 20. That's why I wanted you to see how it starts. Commandment number one, commandment number six. Commandment number six says don't murder. Why don't we need to murder? Well, we know this about the image of God in us, right? And the image of every single person who's ever been conceived. We know that to be true. And so commandment number one is, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. And the implication is, I created all of you in my image. and We do not distort that with murder. Okay, so I think that's it's pretty important for us to see that basis. Now, let's talk about the meaning of the words here now. I kind of alluded to it earlier. Some, is, some translate it murder. Most, most do the ESV, the New King James, NIV, New American Standard, whatever Bible you've got probably has the word murder there. And, 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 and I think that it's kind, of a, it's kind of hard to figure out how to translate this based on what I can, I can figure out. Uh, when they were translating the new Revised Standard Version, which probably not many of you are using, but there's a whole host of really good scholars, and they were completely equally divided on how to translate this Hebrew word. Half of them said we need to translate it kill. Half of them said we need to translate it murder. And I don't know how they ended up settling it, but they came down on the word murder. Murder is a good translation uh, because I think it communicates what certainly part of what God intended here, and that is murder is wrong and murder is the intentional taking of a human life, right? So he's certainly forbidding that. Nobody's going to disagree with that. The problem with it is, and I've got this footnote in my ESV here. Uh, you may have a footnote that says something like this. Listen to this footnote. This is why you got the debate about it. The footnote is, the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. So the truth is, there's another Hebrew word that means murder. This word can mean murder, or it can mean kill through carelessness, or through no, even sometimes it can mean something even weaker than that, the loss of life that you're not even directly involved in. And so I think it's important for us to understand, he is forbidding the taking of innocent life, the intentional taking of innocent life. But if you're reading that and you see the word murder, it unnecessarily excludes some other things that I want us to explore tonight. In fact, if you look at this word, translated murder or kill here, you'll, you'll notice, um, you go to the book of Numbers when they established the cities of refuge. The city of refuge was where you could flee if you, if you, you know, accidentally 
you're involved in an accident and somebody died, or, or you were involved in a fight maybe, and, and, or you were attacked and you, you killed somebody out of self-defense, well, that family might, might be after you. You could flee to a city of refuge to get away until they kind of adjudicated the case, you know, and figured out, are you guilty or innocent? So that word is used that way in other contexts. Here's the thing I want you to recognize. This is a stronger word or a more inclusive word than simply outlawing the intentional taking of an innocent human life. Now, it does that, but it does more than that. It implies that God's people, the Jewish people, and by extension, you and me, we need to be people who don't just avoid taking life, but we need to, pe- we need to be people who advocate life. We need to be people who defend life. We need to be people who are so concerned about life that we're willing to go out of our comfort zone in order to honor life. So what does it mean then? What does it mean? Well, obviously the word, the Hebrew word, forbids us from committing murder. That would include murder of self, suicide, even the so-called good death of euthanasia. We don't have time to talk about a lot of these in great detail tonight, but it would, it, would, it would forbid the taking of innocent infant life, whether pre-born or post-born. It would eliminate abortion. Do not murder. Do not take innocent life. Do not, do not kill. Would certainly, it would certainly be interpreted as, as, as it is wrong to take any kind of innocent life. Self-killing, abortion. There would be some exceptions to this, and I think there is not exceptions in those regards necessarily, but exceptions to this idea of killing. And I think we've got to acknowledge that when you read this, don't murder or don't kill, we've got to interpret it in the Jewish context over against the fact that there were divinely sanctioned wars in the Old Testament. God's telling them to conquer the land and to kill And so I think they would have heard this in that limited context, understanding that in that setting at least, God is saying it's wrong to take innocent life. However, God would command them to take the lives of those who lived in the land. That's an ethical issue, of course, to wrestle with. But God, in that limited kind of context, commanded that. Also, you'd have to interpret this over against the fact that the law of Moses commanded capital punishment, right? Commanded capital punishment. So there were, there were certain settings in which it commanded for lives to be taken. If you committed a capital crime, murder was one of them. There were several capital crimes that you would be put to death. So God is not eliminating capital punishment. In this context, at least, He's not eliminating certain kinds of divinely sanctioned wars. But He is eliminating. He is saying it's wrong to take innocent life. He's saying it's wrong to do it intentionally. He's saying it's wrong for us in unintentionally to do it. In other words, we need to be very careful that we don't carelessly or flippantly or accidentally take somebody else's life. So I just, I just wanted that to be clear when you read this, especially when you read a translation that says don't murder. I think you need to understand, I need to understand, that it's not just talking about somebody on the streets of Montgomery or Birmingham who takes a, takes a pistol and intentionally takes another life. That's, that's certainly part of it, but that's not all of it. It's stronger than that. It's more inclusive than that. Don't murder. Don't kill. Now, 
I want to think with you for a minute about where we are now. How do we read this now? I'm going to turn over to Matthew chapter 5. And this is one of the commandments which we're blessed to have Jesus helping us to understand how he would have us to live it. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. I established that. I'm going to read this in just a second. But I established that foundation because I want you to understand. I want us to understand that when, he, when he's talking about not murdering, not killing, that your, your title that you, you gave me, I think, is, is a good one, the sanctity of life. He's not just saying that we don't need to murder. He's not just saying that we don't need to abort our children, though I believe he is saying that. He's not just saying that we don't need to take innocent life. He is saying we need to honor life. And the principle that's embedded in that text, Jesus fleshes out for us here in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. So let's read it. Just follow along with me if you would. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift, your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out till you've paid every last penny. Now do you see what Jesus says here? So he takes this, takes this command, which we've studied. And he says, this is, this is what you've heard. It was said to those of old and it was said to those of old. Don't commit murder. But Jesus says, I want you to understand, there's, an, there's a principle embedded in that text that underlines that commandment that you need to understand. And he goes on, of course, and he says, if you are angry with your brother, if you insult your brother, if you say to your brother, you idiot, you fool, you worthless one, if you say those things in your heart, if you believe those things, if you look at your brother or you look at someone and you view that person as insignificant or lesser than you, then you have broken the principle of our commandment. You have dishonored life. I don't know about you. That scares me a little bit. Because I think I'm going to be able to get through life without killing anybody. I think I'm going to make it. Now, I don't know what the future holds, but best I can tell, I'm going to be able to withhold, able to withhold from killing anybody. But... Have we disdained others? Have, have, have you ever been tempted to look at someone else and make prejudicial thoughts, have prejudicial thoughts, or make prejudicial statements, or have certain assumptions, or, or think that someone is lesser than you? Have you ever been tempted based on outward appearance, based on apparel, based on skin color, based on educational background, based on whatever? Have we ever been tempted to make those kinds of judgments, to disdain others, to think others are lesser than we are? It seems to me that Jesus is helping us to draw out the principle of our commandment, don't murder, don't kill. And he's saying, actually, what God, what I intended in that is for us to recognize the value of life, of human beings. Now, let's think about how this might apply to us. I'll spend the rest of our time talking about that. How, what, what does this look like today? And I was thinking, as I was preparing this, you know, you guys don't need me to talk to you about murder. You know that's wrong. Don't need me really, probably, to talk to you a lot about abortion. Uh, 
You believe that abortion is wrong. Most Christians believe that it's wrong. Some of those, some of those obvious applications of the law are pretty clear and pretty widely believed in churches of Christ. And I'm glad they are. So how do we read this as Christians living where we live? Let's, let's think about this specific one. Let's think about capital punishment for a minute. Like, uh, like many of you, like maybe, maybe all of you, I don't know, I believe Romans 13 gives the state the right to execute judgment. I believe that. But I also believe that we as Christians have to think in discerning ways, even about things like that. A few years ago, I read, the, uh, I read a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. You guys may have read it, may have heard of it. Brian Stevenson runs the Equal Justice Initiative, which is here in Montgomery. And that book was, was a fascinating one to me. Because in it, he opened my eyes, which probably should have been opened before then, but opened my eyes to see things that I hadn't seen before. Because I'd always been, you know, pretty much, you know, capital punishment, well, they deserve it, you know. People commit the crime, you, you get the punishment you deserve, you know, that, that sort of thing. But it's not quite that simple. You know, it's not quite that simple, especially in the South, especially where you and I live. I'm, I'm born and raised here, you know. I'm, this, is, this is my world. But I think we as Christians have to, have to try to step back from our culture a bit and be, and be um, a little bit critical or at least be discerning in the way things go. And it is true. I mean, the statistics are very clear on this that capital punishment, as we practice it in America, is not fair. It's typically not carried out in fair ways. That doesn't mean, I'm not. don't hear me saying that I believe the principle of capital punishment doesn't hold. I believe Romans 13. I believe, I believe what Paul says there applies to capital punishment. However, I think we need to recognize that as human beings infallibly, very infallibly, and sometimes quite prejudicially, try to carry out that justice, it is done so poorly. I'm not trying to convince you to be against capital punishment. I'm not against capital punishment. But I am trying to convince the church to think critically about where we are as a people and how that when God says don't murder, He's not just talking about don't get out on the streets of Montgomery and kill somebody. He's saying that by my actions or inactions, I can also be held accountable for the way others' lives are portrayed or treated. And so if I'm silent or if I'm inactive, then I can become complicit in the taking of others' lives when those lives are taken along racial or socioeconomic lines or whatever it might be. The, um, that book that was mentioned, Just Mercy, um, I saw uh, some time ago, I don't know, this man six months ago, something, maybe not that long ago, there was um, a man coming to Sanford University where I've been going to school for a while. Um, he, was, he was coming there to speak. His name is Anthony Ray Hinton. And so I, I saw his name, had a little blurb, and I didn't recognize the name immediately, but had a little blurb, said he'd written a book. And so the book is called The Sun Does Shine. He's, he's I don't want to remember the story, Mr. Hinton spent, uh, I should have gone back and checked this. I think it's 35 years. I don't know, 30 something years in, on death row in Alabama. Uh, rested in his 20s, uh, put on death row in his 20s, got out, 
uh, just a couple years, a few years back in his 50s, I believe, and it was figured out that he had been unjustly um, arrested and unjustly accused and unjustly convicted. The stories like that, we're trying to think about how do you apply this text to, to us, you know, to, to, to me, to you, to us Christians in, in the South. How do, we, how do we do this? And I think one of the ways that we got to do this is we need to think as people that God is helping us to understand the value of all life, even when that life is different from us. Especially, we need to value that life because we're tempted not to. So you think about how, how does it relate to capital punishment? How does it relate to war? Um, obviously, in the Old Testament, there are divinely sanctioned wars. And the book of Joshua, uh, a little bit beyond Joshua, perhaps, God, God divinely sanctioning war. But war is an awful thing, right? It's an awful thing. It, some of you have probably been in wars and can speak to this so much more clearly than, than those of us who haven't. And you can speak to the horrible nature of war. And though we have that, those accounts in the Old Testament of God sanctioning those specific wars, I think we as Christians need to be very careful when we're talking about wars. I'm not trying to turn you into a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist myself in the sense that I believe that all war is inherently wrong. Only that I believe that when God says don't commit murder and that we need to honor life, that we as Christians need to be extremely reluctant before getting behind those actions that are going to lead to loss of life. You know, we at least need to be asking questions, right? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to, am I going to support this? Am I going to be opposed to this? We don't need to be portrayed. We don't need to be uh, viewed by the world as being war hungry, you know, because God's not that way. We don't need to be that way, you know, as Christians. Taking of life. You think about, I like the way uh, Edmund Clowney is applying this principle in his book on the Ten Commandments. Edmund Clowney writes, reflecting on some of the things I've already said tonight, but he says, we are guilty of dishonoring life. Think about it. Let me, let me pause here just for a second. What do you think about that? When are we guilty of dishonoring life? Obviously, when we commit murder, right? When we abort our babies. When we, through our negligence, lead to the loss of the lives of others, right? But maybe we need to think more deeply than that, especially, especially for us, you know, Christians. We think about it. Kleine writes, we are guilty of dishonoring life when we are too frightened to engage in the defense of the unborn. Amen to that, right? When we are too frightened to engage in the defense of the unborn, Christians ought to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. We ought to be the voice the voices of those who do not have a voice, whether that is an unborn child or someone who, for some other reason, cannot speak for himself or herself. Clowney says, we are guilty of dishonoring life when we fail to stand up for the weak and helpless. That his, his, his reading of the law there, his reading of the, of the Sixth Commandment is, that is not just saying don't murder, but it is saying that we are guilty of dishonoring life when we don't stand up for those who don't have a voice, when we don't stand up for the weak and the helpless. He says we're guilty of dishonoring life when we keep our food to ourselves, forgetting the widows and orphans. So I think the theme there, at least in Clowney's reading of this, is that when we get beneath the surface and we realize, hey, he's talking about more than just maybe the way I've always read. He's talking about, well, don't murder. You know, let's go into the next commandment. Never murdered. I'm good. I'm good to go. Right? I'm not going to murder anybody. 
where we get beneath the surface, actually the principle there, as explained by Jesus, is getting beneath it. And he's saying it's not just about murder. It's about what's in your heart. It's about how do you view others? How do you view life? How do you view especially the lives of those who are marginalized or weak or powerless or voiceless or whatever it might be? There was a Jewish philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas who lost much of his family in the Holocaust. And he insisted that the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, means nothing less than, quote, you shall defend the life of the other, end quote. You see what he's saying there? Whether we agree with him or not, Jewish person reading the sixth commandment, having survived the Holocaust, he said, you shall not murder means something more than that. It means you shall defend the life of the other. So God's calling you and me as His people to be life advocates, to be life defenders, to people who stand up for those who can't defend themselves. Now, in Clowney, in another part of that same book, he said we need to avoid um, either extreme. Um, and, he, and he said that we need to avoid the extreme of saying that life, that human life is the ultimate value, like it's the ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing. Jesus was willing to lay down His life for us. In fact, He calls upon us. He says, it is an incredible sacrifice for one of us to lay down our lives. For us to lay down our lives for somebody else. So it's not the ultimate value. There are situations in which it is the God-honoring thing for you or me to do would be to lay down our lives for somebody else. So it's not the ultimate value. But then the other extreme is, and this is where to an extent our culture is going, I think, is for us to suggest that human life is no more valuable than like plant life or other mammalian life, other animal life. There's a, an ethicist, Peter Singer. You may have heard of him. He's made, made this argument. He is uh, an American professor who makes the argument, or has made the argument, that it is no more wrong to take a human life than it is to take the life of another mammal because we are simply smarter animals, right? We're, we're simply smarter mammals than the others. That doesn't mean our lives are any more valuable. See, if we go in the trajectory, the the direction we're going, then we're going to devalue life even more. What happened in the 20th century was unthinkable. And I want to close with this. You know, you think about where the world has gone in in the last 300 years. Just just think about it for a second. Last 300 years. um, There's this... Tim Keller's written a book called Making Sense of God. And then he he talks about this when when he says... Before, well, before the Enlightenment, so 18th, before the 18th century, the Western societies were motivated by their belief in God. That kind of defined them. Everybody believed in God. And so uh, everything that they did in some way related to their conviction that there was a God. After the Enlightenment of the 18th century, things changed. People started thinking differently. And God was sort of dethroned. You know, God is dead. Friedrich Nietzsche thing. You know, God is dead. And then you've got taking the place of, of, of God in the 18th and 19th centuries was the nation. We are defined by our connection to the nation. And also after the Enlightenment, you had the development of, of, of technology and the, and the worship of science and Darwinian evolution and all this stuff coming together, leading us into the 20th century where we had the ability to kill people on a mass scale. 
Not only did we have the ability, but we didn't have the underlying foundation to keep us from doing it because God had been dethroned. And when you worship the state or worship the nation, and you've got the ability to kill millions of people, what happens? World War I happens. World War II happens. Korea and Vietnam and genocide and Rwanda and stuff going on in Sudan even now and so on. All this stuff happening. See what, what You see the trajectory here? What happens when people don't believe in God and don't believe that we are ultimately accountable to the God of life? The 20th century happens. So what you and I have to do, we can't stop, we can't change the trajectory of the world, but maybe we can change the trajectory of our little worlds. And we can be people who honor life. We can be people who honor all life, unborn, postborn, regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, the class of, of the, the status of being the other, you know, that we honor all life. That's what God wants to do in us so that we might, in our little worlds, help people to recognize that the God we serve is a God of life. Thank you so much. I want to close my time uh, now with a prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for loving us, for loving life, for giving us life. Help us to be people who are advocates of life, Lord. Help us to be defenders. Help us to be seekers of truth. Help us to be your people to uh, promote in the world your values, Lord. Use us to honor your name, to glorify your Son, and to be faithful as we interact with people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.